but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. Currently we are day drinking and we're thinking of you. <laughs> <laughs> it is the finale of season six of The Body Serve. We uh, what recorded the WTA rap show less than a week ago and we're back to do The Men. Wow, this pace from us, this is just rapid fire. A note on the difference in tone between both episodes. I was thinking about this. The format that we used for the the WTA rap was a very linear one, where we went through the actual calendar of the tennis and went month by month. It's not going to work for this episode because a it would, it would be repetitive. So we're we're doing it in a off the court on the court kind of way because let's be real here, a lot of the stuff that was noteworthy from our perspective, at least on the men's tour this year was a lot of the mess that happened off-court. When we were recording our last episode, I had put on the agenda right at the top, James takes a quiz, and then we sat down to record and looked at the agenda, and then I realized, well, damn, I did not actually make the Mm -hmm. quiz. You had assigned yourself homework and then didn't do it. Didn't even cross my mind. (laughs) And so I've written a quiz for you for this episode where you will answer questions about the men's 2020 season. Oh, Lord. So you're going to put me in a bad mood like before the real episode starts. Listen, if you do well, there is nothing that will make you feel better. I know. I had, I mean, I watched Jeopardy yesterday and I was just sensational. So if this is, you know, worse than that, it's going to be really upsetting. I'm in the kitchen cooking dinner and he's just laying on the couch watching Jeopardy. And all of a sudden he just exclaims. Oh my god, I'm so smart. (laughs) You know what? Sometimes you have to big up yourself when no one else will. Wow, is that a dig at me? No, it's just that you're really, really tired of all the fun facts that I give you many times a day. Yes, that is true. Question number one. Alexander Zverev's non-compliance with COVID protocols was exposed inadvertently on this person's social media. Oh, um... It's not somebody I know, but I, th- Philip Plin? Yes. And who is he? Is he? He's like a designer or something? Some fashion person. Mm. This player, born in 1973, retired from the ATP tour in 2020. Leander Pays. Correct. Six players won their first ATP singles title in 2020. Name three. Oh, dear God. Um... Can I name one? <laughs> um, you did the majority of the filling in of the agenda on this episode. I know, so you I did know. all the research. I you did. should be prepared. I'm trying to like cheat off the research I did. Um, is Riley Opelka one of them? That's incorrect. Oh, God. Um, Taylor Fritz? That's incorrect. <laughs> uh, well, I know it's not Felix, unfortunately. Oh, why is this so hard? I'm only giving you one more guess, so you'll 
the right. majority of the points that you'll be able to get from this question is mm. a third. I feel like I'm really going to fail at this one. D- um, did Yannick Sinner win a title? Correct. So you got oh. one. Oof. <laughs> he beat Pospisil, if you recall. I don't recall. That was a guess. So you'll get a third for that one. Okay. It's out of ten, so the scoring will be very easy. Mm-hmm. Question number four. Eight men won two or more singles titles this year. Rublev led with five, followed by Djokovic with four. Mm-hmm. Name three of the remaining six players who all won two titles. Team? Incorrect. Wait, wait. Oh, players that only won two? Correct. Oh my god. So you already um, lost one. <laughs> I miss. I wasn't listening. Zverev? Yes. The two colognes? Monfils? Yes. So you get two-thirds for that one. Oh, shit. The other players were Nadal, Medvedev, Yerbu, Christian Garin, Mm. and Umber. Okay, that's on me because I didn't listen to the end of the question. Going back to the previous question, the one about six players winning their first ATP singles titles this year, you got Sinner. The other ones were Umber, Kaspar Ruud, Tiaga Zeboshvuj, is that correct? Something like that, yeah. Ketsmanovic and John Millman. All right. Question number five. These next three questions, they're going to be quotes that somebody said in 2020, and you have to tell Ooh. me who said it. Oh, I love these. Quote, I've known her all my life, and I've never seen her going through a mood swing or anything like that. Oh, my God. Um... I have to say who said it, not like who they said it about. Correct. Oh my lord. Um, I've known her all my life, and I've never seen her go through a mood swing or anything like that. I mean, just the most amazing woman who doesn't oh, have um, mood swings. Sasha Bayan? No, this, if you recall, is from that dubious ATP segment in March, where all these ATP players were asked... Who is the woman that inspires them most, or something like that? And everybody's oh, no. like, "Oh, of course, mom." It's about it's my someone's mom. mom. Is it Dominic? It's Dimitrov. Uh, okay, I re- I do remember that. <laughs> damn, damn. Question number six. Quote: All of us reside within the pandemic, referred to as hashtag COVID nineteen. It is horrible, and it killed too many lives. We must always defend our households, family members, and comply within the rules. However, nonetheless, do not like hashtag rats. Oh, that has to be Curios. That's Boris Becker talking about Curios. This sucks. (laughs) I feel like I'm getting close. Do you remember that? Mm, Sort of. That whole back and forth? Right. Where Curios Curios was going after Zverev for his covidiotity. Co- <laughs> Try that again. Covidia- Covidiacy. Covidiacy. And Becker was like, no, 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 bro code, locker room, yeah, you're a yeah. rat. Say that shit behind closed doors. Yeah. Question number seven. Rafael Nadal equaled Roger Federer's all-time record of 20 Grand Slam titles with a 13th win at Roland Garros. Who did he beat in the quarterfinals and the semifinals? So the semifinals were Diego. That's correct. And I feel like the, the quarters... The quarterfinals were against a player who is expected to win many Grand Slams. 
Mm-hmm. I think the hmm. one of the preeminent under twenty players. The preeminent. No, I I know. I don't. It's Sinner. Correct. I didn't need the clue. I I oh, knew it was yeah. Sinner. Okay, you knew it was Sinner. Mm-hmm. Question number eight. Oh, I lied. So I I jumped one. This is more this quotes, is the right? third quote okay. one. Okay. Quote. It is like this. There are houses which look nice from the outside, wonderful from the outside, but you rarely know who lives inside, how it looks inside. The ending of that was iffy. Mm. That's the the title of this episode. The ending of that was iffy. Mariah fans, if you know, you know. Turns out this is just happenstance. Mm. This is not what the title of the episode is referring to, but it works. The translation there could go both ways. But you rarely know who lives inside, or you rarely know how the inside looks. Okay. So I'll read it again. Quote, It is like this. There are houses which look nice from the outside, wonderful from the outside, but you rarely know who lives inside, how it looks inside. This is from the very start of the year. Mm. I honestly have no clue. None. Okay, think what the type of relationship could be between the person saying this and who Mm. it's being said to. Okay, maybe like a split. Somebody That's who correct. used, used yeah. to be close. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say used to be close, but it was regarding a split mm-hmm. at the start of the year. Does this have to do with Sasha again? No, it does not. <laughs> N- neither of the Sashas. Close, though. Oh, dear. Uh, Who's his boo? Who's his Bellamy boo? His Bellamy? Oh, Dominic? Mm-hmm. Oh, so this is... Um, Bresnik? This is Tomas Muster. Oh my god. I suck. Wow, this is like I've never done this poorly on a quiz. And I can't I don't know if it's hard or I'm just uh, like stupid. I'm not going to answer that. That is a trap. <laughs> Question number 9. This player lost 3 singles finals in 2020 but won a Masters 1000s title in doubles. They lost 3 singles finals but won a Masters 1000 title in doubles. This must be Felix. That is correct. Okay. Do you know who, who he partnered with? Uh, I like I remember vaguely, but no. Um, oh, it was a really good doubles player, right? It was. Um... That is incorrect. It's Orkach. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the final question, question number ten. Three players jump. You know what? Let me stop you. You could have just left it at my right answer. <laughs> It didn't make me embarrass myself. Question number 10. Three players jumped more than 10 ranking spots from their 2019 year-end ranking Mm -hmm. to finish inside the top 20 this year. So three players finished outside the top 20 last year, Mm -hmm. and this year they jumped more than 10 spots to finish inside the top 20. Yeah. Three Um, players. So Raonic. That's correct. Uh, I want to say... Oh, um, Pablo Carreño Busta. Correct. And... And the most obvious one. Oh, who's the most obvious one? Who did all the winning in 2020 outside of the Grand Slams? Mm, um, oh, Andre Rublev. Correct. Oh, man. I almost missed Ruby. <laughs> so let me tally this here. You got six out of ten total. Oh, you know, but I got a third somewhere. And a two-third. So oh. that... The fractions, when you put the third and the two-thirds together, make a whole. I, I do know how to add fractions. Thank you so much. Six out of ten. Are you are you okay with that? I'm actually happy with that, because I felt like the, the quiz was pretty hard. 
That's a 60% with clues, though. So I think that's a fail. <laughs> no, but also you're clearly just a little bit foggy because you've done the research. You just couldn't, yeah. you just couldn't pick the answers mm-hmm. out of your head, if I'm being generous. Thank you. It's so rare. <laughs> Let's get into what happened in 2020 on the ATP Tour. On the court, you may be surprised to learn that the ATP was still able to pull off half the number of events that they did in 2019. I don't know if it felt more or less to you. It felt less. So in 2019, the tour held 66 tournaments. And in 2020, the tour held 33. Mm. And some of them safely. The ATP Cup premiered in January 2020. We called it the ATP Sippy Cup because there was a lot of toddler-like behavior going on. It's clear from this agenda that you still were not a fan of that event. I was not. Because, do you recall, of course, these are, like we talked about in last episodes, these are little quibbles that feel so unimportant now because the world is different. I remember complaining that this tournament felt interminable. It felt so long. Nobody seemed to really understand the format. It impeded upon other tournaments other ATP tournaments, other WTA tournaments. The women's players were just strewn all over that site. Right. Trying to get their matches in. In Brisbane, they relegated the women's event to outer courts for the first few days of the tournament. And remember, Brisbane has an incredible draw on the women's side. There were several withdrawals from other Australian tournaments, from men's players, because they were just wiped out from ATP Cup, and why exhaust yourself before the Australian Open? There was that not-so-small bit about Stefanos Tsitsipas hitting his dad with his racket. Mm. Yeah, that happened. Uh, Zverev made his dad cry. There were a lot of father issues at this tournament. Medvedev uh, had a lumberjack moment. I mean, these these tantrums over a first-year experimental fake tournament. But not fake, because it is actually a real ATP tournament and it counts as real wins. But just like Labor Cup, the fans can say they care. They care so much. (laughs) They surely do. And I'm sure for a bunch of them, it was good practice. Novak got six matches in. He won all of them. He won the Australian Open, of course. And this may have been a great warm-up for him. And there are obviously a lot of benefits to this type of tournament. We talked in January about the uh, kind of the oversaturation of nationalistic tournaments. And of course, we didn't have the Olympics this year, so we had one fewer. But, you know, there is such thing as too much of these playing for your country tournaments. Not only that, this event itself was doing too much and the players were doing too much. It was all too much. (laughs) So the Australian Open, of course, you know, Djokovic won his eighth Australian Open title, record extending, and his 17th slam, beating Dominic Team in five sets. And at this time, uh, Dominic Team well and truly looked on the cusp. He could have won that match yeah. against Novak Djokovic. And if you had said at the end of that tournament, Dominic Team's going to win a slam this year, you'd have been like, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it could be on hard court. That would still make perfect sense. The Prince of Clay thing, he has well and truly thrown that off. He's just the Prince of Tennis. (laughs) Basically. He is 
it appears the heir apparent. Some of the highlights from the Australian Open, uh, we've talked about them before, but, you know, Federer was down 8-4 in the fifth set tiebreak versus Millman at the Australian Open. You just have to get to 10 points in the fifth set tiebreak. He wins six points in a row to just simply tie up that tiebreak and win. Then, quarterfinals against Tennis Sangren, remember him? Roger Federer saved seven match points to save humanity and beat Tennis Sangren. Sangren has a thing for Australia. Mm -hmm. If you recall, a couple years prior, he had made the quarterfinals as well in Australia, right? Was quarterfinals? I think so, yeah. This would have seen him go a step further to the semifinals. Every year, I was going to say you hope, but this is definitely I hope. Every year I hope those Australia points will just fall off. And they'll (laughs) just be that. After he made his first run in Australia, he then... I think, won a tournament in New Zealand. He won Auckland the next year. Mm. So that kind of offset whatever he lost from not doing well at the Australian Open, and then he comes back, and, like, it's... We just can't get rid of him. No, I mean, the dude is in amazing shape. He should probably be winning more. And now we have certain listeners thirsting after tennis. They're ashamed, but, you know, sometimes you can't help the libido. Oh, (laughs) Let's not, you don't let's like that not word? go there. <laughs> the quarterfinal uh, with Nadal and team was excellent. Nadal let leads slip in the first and second sets. And it was uncharacteristic of him, but team always plays him extremely tough on hard courts, especially. And letting leads slip within sets sort of reared its head again in the ATP finals uh, versus both Dominic and Medvedev. After getting a break, letting those leads slip away in sets. And, it, you know, it could be nothing. It could be nervousness. It could be getting a bit older and sort of facing that down. All speculation. Of course. That's why I use the conditional could. Mm. I just find it a lazy speculation. Oh, wow. wow. So it seems from this agenda you're just going through... The slams first. Oh, yeah, it does say the three mm. slam winners. I wow. mean, we're, you know, it's not written in stone here. Yet. Yeah, okay. So, Australian Open is done. Djokovic looks unbeatable. He would carry that unbeaten streak all through the COVID break mm-hmm. into the resumption, and then we get to the US Open. Right. Djokovic had won Dubai, Cincinnati. He was unbeaten at ATP Cup. He had a 26-match win streak to start the year. Those six wins from ATP Cup count toward the official record. And we get to the U.S. Open. And, of course, you know what happens in the fourth round versus Pablo Carreño Busta, the default that shook the tennis world. I was just minding my own business on the couch. This was when? October? I September. September. So I was working at that time. Happened to be home to mm-hmm. watch it. And you were upstairs. Mm-hmm. And this kind of whole hummy first set gets turned on its head when Karenia Busta breaks Djokovic. And you're like, well, okay, fine. I mean, even if he comes back and wins this first set, like, this is we've, we've, like, yeah. this is, this is a cute little moment. <laughs> and then it happened. And I screamed from downstairs. I said, <laughs> right. you need to get down here now. Like, he's about to be disqualified. This is crazy. And watching the video replay, it was obvious that that was going to be the decision. There was no other option. Mm -hmm. I don't know how folks 
felt in the moment, if there was a lot of cloudiness in their brains in taking the situation in. But with the benefit of time, it's even more clear that this is what had to happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel bad personally for Djokovic at all for this instance. No, no. Because in watching that match, I remember just the game before, I believe, him swiping the ball toward the side of the court. And the commentators themselves were like, um, what, what's the chair doing here? Like, that's, mm. that's, that's crazy. And then this happens. And then we go on to see later on in the year that he does pretty much the exact same thing again, but without incident. Mm-hmm. And then and the video surface of him from, what, the French Open or some tournament a few years back where he's so glib and flippant about it when asked, do you think this is something that could come back to bite you at some point in your career at a very important moment, given that you're chasing history? Mm. And he's like, well, essentially the tennis version of clown question. I was just going to say that, yeah. Basically, the U.S. the stupid question, let's move on. So for me, he got what he had coming to him in that moment. And I say that with my whole chest. <laughs> Crocs be damned. Come oh, for me. Oh. Um, and um, what I will say is, I guess folks feel that there's enough time since that incident to be plastering the line umpire's face all over the internet in memes. Like, mm. I don't find that funny. I didn't find it then. I still don't find it not funny now. Like, do better. Right. I Djokovic has a tendency to issue these very warm and long apologies after something like this happens. But then things that he says weeks or months later begin to undermine those apologies. Like casual remarks about removing lines people from the court so I don't get in trouble again. You, you know, like it, the things he says after makes you think, well, maybe that apology wasn't entirely sincere. And so that's why I don't feel bad. There are a lot of reasons not to feel bad for him in this instance. (laughs) Anyway, the U.S. Open was the next-gen Open. It it felt like a coming-out party for a lot of these young players. Six former next-gens among the eight quarterfinalists, and then team, who was a few years older than those guys. There were three Canadians in the fourth round. We had Shapovalov, Felix Ojealiasim, both previous next-gen people, and Vashak Pospisil, who had an amazing comeback this year. Shapovalov in the quarterfinals, who lost a, a grinding, exhausting five-setter to a more fit player, Curry Nobusta. Wearing one of the most hideous kits that we saw this year. <laughs> the U.S. Open also gave us a lot of psychodrama on the men's side. There was just a a lot of uh, deep, troubling interactions between players and boxes. (laughs) It's like they were also going through therapy on the court. Yeah. This came out most clearly in uh, the match with Chorich and Tsitsipas. Chorich saved six match points. and you couldn't really even call it saving because Tsitsipas made wild errors on most of them. It felt like a real collapse. And there were, you know, the guys were yelling at each other. Tsitsipas was screaming at his box. And it was it was a lot. But it did, it did feel like a genuine night match at the U.S. Open. It was a mess. But that fifth set was still pretty good tennis. Mm-hmm. And Tsitsipas did not go away. That's what I've liked from Tsitsipas this year. 
including at the French Open. He took oh, this, Joe... this is part of you boarding the Sitsi train? <laughs> well, maybe. Cautiously. I have one foot on the I don't the know. Step. You issued a tweet. You're like, I can stand. I think I stand. I stand. I like, I like watching him. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate his competitive will. Uh, watching him take Djokovic to five sets at Roland Garros when he could have, you know, a performance like this at the U.S. Open was potentially embarrassing for him because it was he was so exposed and he really got himself himself together at Roland Garros. He also went the good way of kind of making fun of himself yeah, immediately yeah. afterward. And we said on the show after it happened, the way this season is set up with still another Grand Slam to come, with more tournaments to come, he has the benefit of potentially exercising those demons and working through that rather than having to stick with it in his head mm-hmm. till January. Because he is so introspective. Okay, Dominic team beats Alexander Zverev in five. How would you describe those sets? I can't even find an adjective. Seesaw? Look, it was unforeseen situations for both of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, Dominic had been in multiple Grand Slam finals, but this was the first time where he was the favorite. Where, I mean, if he didn't win this one, my God. <laughs> I'm always reminded of this comment by Martina Navratilova when I was watching the Wimbledon run of Yana Navratna in 1998. Back then, Martina was on HBO. I think Wimbledon was on mm, HBO coverage. Right. And growing up in Jamaica, we had our we had our satellite dish that we got or, you know, all these foreign channels from. Uh-huh. And so I, I got to watch all that Wimbledon stuff, and I was a huge Yana Novotna fan. And that final felt similar, if you were to look at it, to what was happening to Dominic this time around, being the one who was such the clear favorite, the one who felt like it was owed to them, mm. and that the match was on their racket, and they just needed to, to get the job done. And I remember Martina saying... If she can't get this done, then she just needs to stop playing. Or something something to that effect. And I was like, well, damn, that was that was harsh, but true. Right. And I would never tell somebody to retire, but like the point being this is your moment. Right. And Dominic was much younger than Yana, but it's it's similar because he finally gets to a Grand Slam final without one of the all-time greats. Mm-hmm. Yana like, had done the hard work. She took out Venus in the quarterfinals. She took out her nemesis, Martina Hingis. At that point in the semifinals. And then she gets Natalie Tosia in the final. <laughs> Takes her out in straight sets. And I'll never forget the winning point. One of the best winning points ever. A forehand return down the line. Kind of Yana's sweeping, chippy, wingspanny forehand down the line. And she just collapsed to the ground. Mm-hmm. And that was that. A moment most pleasing to me in my tennis watching career. <laughs> Dominic came out nervous. Which based on your explanation, is so understandable. He was tight. He didn't play very well. And Zverev was just super on for the first two and a half sets at least. It was a slog. But Dominic, you know, he he earned that tournament. Period. I mean, again, I don't, I don't like that kind no, of terminology. Because anyone who wins earns it, basically? It's like somebody deserves it. Yana deserved a Wimbledon title. Oh, so you have exceptions to your rule. There are a few exceptions. Yana deserved one. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. Pete Sampras didn't deserve a French Open title. Right. Even though he was like the greatest at that time, whatever, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Fine. Let's move on to Roland Garros, which was hosted at the end of September. 
The big story of week one was this huge number of male first-time third-rounders. Young guys, a lot of people, you know, we've never heard of, ranked in the 100s, 200s. Who are you, John McEnroe? A lot of players we what, have never heard of. Had you heard of Gaston before he beat Stan Barenko? I, um, um, no. Prob- maybe? Lies. Maybe I had. Lies. Of course, Yannick Sinner reaches his first third round, goes on to the quarterfinals. Sebastian Corda, Lorenzo Sonego, a bunch of guys. So that was kind of the, the first week story. And then it became a typical Roland Garros. <laughs> there weren't a lot of massive shockers in the second week. Rafa breezed through and won his 13th title. So I would say the French this year was a little more uh, according to plan. Right, but the context here was that the French Open was happening in damn near October. <laughs> yes. In chilly conditions, conditions where light is not optimal for most of the day. <laughs> right. Uh, where the ball was different. And there was a lot of talk about how this would affect Nadal. Yes. And as it turned out, it really did not affect Nadal very much. And maybe it did, but what we saw was Nadal more than most, more than anybody in the history of the game on clay, is able to adapt his game to certain situations better than other players. And the worry was coming from his loss to Diego Schwartzman in Rome, where the weather was behaving similarly. It was terrible weather. In Paris, the first week, the weather was really rough and it improved as the tournament went on. It's not to say that the causes for concern, be it from him or from fans or from commentators, weren't warranted. Right, right. I really enjoyed the Gaston performance at that tournament. Mm. That match against Vavrinka is maybe my favorite match of the year. Oh, oh my, wow. It was just fun. It was something different and fun. There's not a lot of fun in men's tennis. I know. I really hope he can build on this because it was exciting to watch him. But for Nadal... His legacy at this tournament just keeps growing. People always say when there's a record, well, this will never be broken. Folks love to talk about the the records in sport that are most unbreakable. Mm -hmm. This has to be top five unbreakable record in all of sport. Yeah. I just don't see... It's crazy. (laughs) And with that, he tied Roger Federer atop the Grand Slam leader tally with 20. Remember, if you cast your mind back to 2015, this didn't look feasible Mm-mm. for him to then go on and win, what, six more from that time? Yep. Two more U.S. Opens. He's, uh, what, four-peated at mm-hmm. Roland Garros again? And the way he did it, beating somebody who's had his number for a long time, mind you, not on clay, but someone who has beaten him on clay a bunch of times. And Djokovic was going into this match having just won Rome, being damn near undefeated for the entire season. And I would say, you know, the commentariat was giving each kind of a 50-50 chance in this match. And Nadal just came out and did everything, almost everything, a little bit better. And some things much, much better. He did a lot of things much, (laughs) much better than Djokovic that day. A bagel first set. That was unbelievable. And I was almost sure that Djokovic was going to storm back and win the second set. It was not impossible for Nadal to have won the first two sets by Bagels. Mm. The match didn't pick up any steam from the other side of the net until the third set. Right. Rafa hit only 14 on forced errors. Djokovic hit 52. He did hit more winners than Rafa. But Rafa's defense just made 
Novak's drop shots ineffective. There were so many passes, so many winners off those drop shots. And he protected his second serve. Like, he had a 66% winning percentage on his second serve. It's crazy. So that was the Grand Slam year in men's tennis. Right, so we went through the the slams in chronological order, as displaced as two of them were. We're not going to do that with the rest of the results on the men's side. Just some of the, the, the highlights, the things that stuck out. Back in February, Guillaume Monfils won two titles in a row, Montpellier and Rotterdam. Rotterdam was a repeat. He excels at this part of the season. It seems like February is so crazy that this stuff just gets forgotten. It's not his first fabulous February. <laughs> no. He beat two Canadians in those finals. You're going to get some more Canadian content on this episode. Uh, he beat Vashik in Montpellier and Felix in Rotterdam. And Jem's life is still going strong. There was that brief period where they seemed to have scrubbed each other from their social media, but they, they're still going. They were on a break. They're back. Well, were they actually in a break or were they just messing with us? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? Part of part of the drama. Milos Raonic was resurgent, another Canadian, finished number 14 this year, reaching quarterfinals in Australian, felt like out of nowhere, the final in Cincinnati, losing to Djokovic after winning the first set, semifinal of Paris, so he made it through the quarantine, everybody was talking about his hair, including us. His, his thickness. <laughs> his short shorts. Supporting Naomi Osaka's activism at Cincinnati when other men's players were most certainly not. And then he has to go and say this dumb shit about cancel culture and working with this guy who had been fired by a CAA for alleged sexual harassment. So it, so it really it soured me on him for a little while. The quarterfinal result in Australia, yes, it's surprising in insofar as him having struggled with injury so much. For the last few seasons, but that's his bag. The Australian Open is Milos's bag. Yeah. Andre Rublev, you mentioned in the quiz, leads the tour with five titles in Doha, Adelaide, Hamburg, St. Petersburg, Vienna. Those last three were three straight 500 tournaments. And it's, I don't, we haven't really talked about this much. We've talked about Andre a lot, but coming back from these injuries in 2019, he had a stress fracture in his back which required a few months of complete rest, no training. Then he got this right wrist injury, and it all amounted to a huge slump in what was a very promising young career. And he struggled with that mentally. So for him to come back like this was was remarkable. He had the same number of wins as Novak Djokovic this year, 41. And Rublev just... being 41-10 and 10 versus Djokovic's 41-5 and 5 record. Medvedev had a, a pretty blah 2020 season until the last couple of events where he he tells us that he kind of just said to himself like wow i suck and then <laughs> and then got it together he uh finished the year by winning paris and the atp finals winning the finals after beating nadal in the semis where nadal served for the match at 5-4 in that second set broke him at love and then came back to win that match we mentioned on the ATP Finals rap episode that by winning in London, the final hosting of the ATP Finals at the O2 Arena, in doing so, Medvedev completed a stretch of seven straight top 10 wins. One of the more impressive feats of the year, I'd Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. Late in our season and the tennis season, we titled an episode Dossies to Mine House, 
which the episode was largely about Zverev winning Cologne 1 and 2 and kind of his putting his career back together this year, mm-hmm. reaching the final of the U.S. Open. Not 24 hours after that came the double revelations of his ex-girlfriend's pregnancy and Olya Sharipova's accusations of domestic violence against him. So what a fucking mistake that was to name the episode that. We definitely did not promote that episode <laughs> at all. No, no. <laughs> we did not know um, what was about to happen. I think that is the extent of our bandwidth for men's results this year. Yeah, for the actual on-the-court stuff. Off-the-court, it was, I, as you know, it was a weird year. In the middle of March, tennis just stopped. And, and we got a glimpse into what these players are like when... They're not playing when they're forced to stay at home. A lot of these guys are extroverted and extroverts in quarantine. I don't know. They have to let it out somehow. We also got a glimpse of what it's like for some of these men when they're tasked with considering people other than themselves. Mm -hmm. When as young tennis players, that is not what they're taught in large part, unless you have a great support system around you. You're, you know people in your life your parents your coach your physio your agent they all line up to serve you exclusively that was perhaps an explanation of how that comes about in one <laughs> instance with Sverb was this this latest fluff piece in der spiegel mm-hmm. where there's kind of a time jump from the day before sharipova's accusations are made public and interviews being done there. So there's a setting being s- described then, and then a time jump where this very family, because apparently they operate solely as a unit now, address the accusations. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that was posed to Zverev in that interview was of your two parents, both of whom have coached Zverev in his life and times, occupying the dual role of parent and tennis coach. He was asked, which of the two was more strict? And he responded by saying, nobody is strict with me. Yeah, if that doesn't explain it all. That that Der Spiegel piece painted a picture of enablement and entitlement. And, and things really start to make sense when you read it. Kind of the official response from the Zverev family about the allegations from Olya was to impugn her character, which is... A, a classic response, but it really reveals a lot about the people who are being accused. They said she wasn't the right fit within the family. And they, you know, the mother mentioned weird things like she got up from the table when she was done eating. Just small uh, instances of what they perceived as poor manners. And that was enough to say these allegations are not valid because she and Sasha were not a, a good fit. She's a party girl. She's, quote, unstable. In the same piece where Zverev goes out of his way to tell you that he himself is not a party person. So there is the mm. the contradiction there of setting the two of them up as complete polar opposites. He's the innocent one who is not about that rambunctious, reckless party life. Mind you, that was in response to him being asked about his breaking quarantine that he said he was in to go be photographed, having a grand old time frolicking around the Mediterranean. Yeah. So that's that's the new news. That piece in Der Spiegel was 
thought it was interesting, and I didn't feel that it was a puff piece because it didn't go easy on the Zvera family outside of the quotations. The, the writer said, In tennis, it is hard to grow up in more privileged surroundings than Sasha Zverev, but privilege can also lead to improvidence. And that's referencing the fact that all of his nuclear family were tennis players, he is the most gifted, and he was treated as such. He doesn't move past being a fluff piece, though. Well, it did say, <laughs> it did say still... Zverev's somewhat conceited manner hasn't been universally well-received in Germany. Right, but we're still getting the, oh, he's sitting there looking reflective, and there's the trophy with so-and-so, there's the picture with so-and-so, there's the childhood bedroom. Mm. Painting this picture of innocence. Okay. I do, I think maybe it, it, it... It falls victim to tropes of sport writing that do not fit the subject matter at hand. Right, right. It does require some work on the part of the reader to decide if it reflects well or poorly on the family. Like, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a personal profile of Alexander Zverev? Or, and then are we just going to throw in this other stuff toward the mm-hmm. end? One last bit on this new Der Spiegel article about Zverev. It's presented and framed around this new, around this lawsuit that was settled today, right? Right. Whereby Zverev was trying to break free from his previous management. We know that he's represented by Team 8 now, but he left his previous management that he had since he was age 15 or so, claiming that it was one of those deals where young athletes sign young and get locked into these unscrupulous deals for like 15 years or whatever, and he felt like he was being taken advantage of. Right. So they settled today. Uh, We haven't seen the details of the settlement, really, but it does release Zverev from this contract that he was in. Mm -hmm. The the agent, Patricio Ape, I I don't want to say his last name, thought that he was still entitled to a percentage of Zverev's income up, you know, for a few more years, Mm -hmm. arguing that he had created many millions of dollars in endorsements for him. And, you know, it may very well have been a predator relationship. We don't know. We can't comment on that. It's undisputed that this guy put up a whole bunch of funds, like 60,000 euros, to get Zverev started when Misha wasn't really doing that well right. in his mid-twenties to, to support Alex's early career. Alex took off, things broke down, whatever. What we're getting at here is the family is talking and opining about all these issues now. And the parents go to great lengths to blame this agent for Alex being pretty much an asshole. They they don't use those words, but they're mm. saying, look, Alex is a money-hungry asshole, and it's this guy's fault. That's not how we raised yeah. him. It's very weird. It's so strange. Right? It's almost like they say Alexander turned into this new person that yeah. they didn't recognize, but they blamed it entirely yeah. on the agent. All of a sudden, he came home, and he's like, wow, this is how much I make per hour. Wow, I'm going to be this rich. And he's so absorbed by riches and money and wealth and they're like no you need to get rid of him that's his influence mind you it might have something to do with the lack of strictness that was involved in his childbearing who knows so says sasha himself so says sasha himself there is a trend of pointing fingers outward right the family unit is a is a unit and it's always somebody else influencing you can draw other lines elsewhere we're not going to connected those dots right now so we skipped ahead a bit let's go back and start with the very beginning of the pandemic 
and how the players responded. Novak Djokovic was <laughs> uh, kind of the first player to make a series of major missteps. The first was the quotation that he was opposed to vaccination and he wouldn't want to be forced by someone to take a vaccine in order to be able to travel. We said earlier in the year that this quotation can mean a few things. It can mean he's opposed to all vaccination. It can also mean that he is opposed to this hypothetical COVID-19 vaccination, which way back when he said that was purely a dream. Mm -hmm. You know, now it's a reality. But then it was coupled with his wife being slapped with lies, lies, and more lies by Instagram for her conspiracy theory surrounding 5G. Yes. And coronavirus. And while all this is going on, Novak is also doing these long, very bizarre Insta-lives with the fake scientist Shervin Jafari. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very weird time. It revealed a lot about Djokovic that maybe the casual fan didn't know. But it was this affinity for conspiracy theories and mm. for pseudoscience. And now we know how that's played out in some parts of the world because the Australians are not having it with Novak Djokovic. Mm -hmm. With all the, the restrictions that have been put into place to make the Australian Open happen, government ministers are repeatedly targeting him as <laughs> the poster child for, you're not going to fuck this up for us. Right. And the event that changed everything was, of course, the Adria Tour which Djokovic maintains was held according to the health protocols of the Serbian government, that may be true. However, it did not go forward with good judgment on anyone's part. They there was had, a kid's day. They had a kid's day. They had full stadiums of spectators. They had club nights with these big parties indoors. It appeared to have no safety protocols at all. And Serbia had done a good job of containing the virus. They had a very strict lockdown early on, but the virus, it was not eradicated from Serbia. And you're also inviting a lot of players from different countries and not requiring them to quarantine before the tournament starts. I mean, the biggest shock of 2020 was that Dominic team did not contract coronavirus. It is almost unbelievable. But just things like... The organizers originally said that all spectators would have to keep a one-meter distance from each other. That did not happen on the Serbian leg of the tournament. Stadiums were full. Originally, there were supposed to be five legs to five different cities in the Balkans. While the tournament was going on, Montenegro had already canceled. On the second leg, just the second leg in Zadar, Croatia, Grigor Dimitrov tests positive. This is after he left and flew back to Monaco. Well, we saw when he retired from that match against Chorich that he was in no shape to be playing tennis, whatever the no, reason was. No, It's just, it is unbelievable that in the middle of a pandemic that everybody knows about, you would take the court displaying symptoms of that disease. Within days, Troitsky, Chorich, the Djokovic family, even Isovic, all test positive for COVID-19. Zverev then leaves the Adria tour. He's supposedly quarantining in his apartment as per statements on his social media. And then he's spotted in Monaco partying up brunch style on Plen's Instagram. Yeah. Uh, Dominic Team. But I'm sorry. Oh. That's a misrepresentation. I apologize because he's not a partier. That is not who he is. <laughs> Dominic Team left the tournament 
went straight to France to play in UTS. And this is at odds with the quarantine procedures we saw at the U.S. Open. I mean, the U.S. Open wasn't a complete bubble because they allowed players to come in, what, like four-ish days before the tournament? It, it's just unbelievable. It's truly unbelievable that Dominic and Zverev never tested positive. Through all of this, Dominic team is traipsing all over Europe in private jets while the pandemic is raging on, completely unaware or uncaring of how it looks when he's taking selfies documenting these travels with those hideous glasses. <laughs> that was, you don't have to go uh, after I'm the glasses. I'm not going to let go of the glasses. He already did the frosted tips. The glasses is just a step too far. <laughs> he likes boy bands. That's why he did the frosted tips. Mm-hmm. Didn't you see his Spotify list? I certainly did Westlife. Not. Well, I do like Westlife. <laughs> and I say it all over again. That I never want to say goodbye. And I oh. never want to make you cry. I don't feel like Westlife made it to Rochester, New York. There are a lot of things didn't make I, it to Rochester, New York. That's true. Well, you just you just threw Sorry. me there with the Westlife reference. I'm a big <laughs> fan of Westlife. Dominic was all over the place in Europe after Adria tour. He was making jokes about having to be tested so much and say I'm the most negative guy on tour. Ha <laughs> And it you know it was just tonally really not cute because people were legitimately suffering all over the world from this disease. And it, I mean, for a lot of people, this snapped their image of Dominic Team as this super nice guy. At one point during all of this, I, I sent out a Twitter poll asking, of these three players, and you can also give a write-in, of these three players, which one has fallen the most in your estimations this year? And it was Djokovic, Team, and Zverev. A couple of people wrote in, one of the writings was Federer. <laughs> I won't say who said that, but this person, as a Federer fan, was just disgusted by the whole Black Square thing. Oh, oh, we'll talk about that. Yes. Yeah. But I'm sure if you were to take this poll now, there's one person who would be miles ahead of the others. Yeah. It was surprising. I, I feel he revealed a lot about himself. No, I'm saying Zverev would be winning this. Oh, well, that's true. Sorry. For, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, Djokovic won the, won the poll. Oh, th- what well, I remember being surprised by that because uh, I wasn't I wasn't surprised by the path that Novak took. What do you want a medal? No, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> with Dominic's image, the contrast was just so glaring between what we previously thought and where it went. Right, but there'd been there'd been nuggets, little oh, crumbs yes. over the last oh, couple yes. of years. The, uh, if you were paying attention, the press room incident. But then he also has this prize money thing mm-hmm. that really kind of solidifies the new direction that he's he's heading in. Yeah, so we're jumping around a bit, but when the two tours were trying to decide what what should we do for players who have completely lost their income during this pandemic, Djokovic proposed that the top 100 players and the top 20 doubles players would have to contribute to this player relief fund on a sliding scale based on your ranking. The ATP membership voted this down, so it didn't happen. By the time Dominic made these comments, Djokovic's proposal had already been voted down, so it was moot. But uh, he explained several times, many times, why he did not want to contribute. 
He said, I know the Futures Tour and played there for two years. There are a lot of people who don't give everything to the sport. I don't see why I should give money to such people. I would prefer to donate to people or institutions that really need it. And, you know, I, gu I guess it's your money. <laughs> you can donate it how you like. But it was, it felt so unfeeling, so unempathetic at the time. And when he was asked to clarify, sort of given an opportunity to, um, to make it better, it, he said, lots of players don't behave professionally. And I don't want to... That, that depends on your definition of professional. Right. Because I would argue that tripsing around Europe in private jets while you claim to be concerned about the environment in the middle of a pandemic is not very professional. <laughs> but I that's mean, just me. When Dominic is on court, he is the consummate professional. He plays a lot. He tries hard all the time. There's no denying that. It was just, uh, God, it was like, what surprised me about that, that he was given the opportunity to make it better. I'm sure people around him wanted him to clarify and sort of smooth that over. And he dug in further every time. Again, I just think nobody cares. <laughs> We're talking about things that will never again register I know. publicly on the Dominic team radar. Nobody's ever going to mm. ask him about this again. Okay, it's, fair enough. It's a penny. We don't even use pennies anymore in Canada. That's what this is for <laughs> yeah. Dominic team. Yeah. After the Adria tour, Djokovic continued to criticize safety protocols at the U.S. Open. In Europe, the ATP players were threatening to boycott the U.S. Open if they were forced to quarantine afterward, and it jeopardized their participation in the European tournaments. It was just, it was galling that in the wake of such a disastrous and dangerous Adria tour, he was still making these comments. He was still continuing to spread misinformation about COVID-19, about the efficacy of a vaccine that still was yet to exist. During this time, and still to this day, I just want the men to shut up. <laughs> right, like, as we talked about last episode, the women were largely quiet, or they were doing videos on TikTok or whatever. The guys, I mean, were given so many opportunities to speak and so frequently showed how self-involved they are. And then we have the issue of the PTPA, which shows a different side to Djokovic. I don't want to paint Novak with one brush on this show because there are things that he does that are very good. I agree. I You're right. And, you know, and we may sit here and say, well, team didn't want to do this, but I'm sure he's sponsored... And adopted at least 15 penguins by now. <laughs> Shut up. Point is, they do charity. Right. And they do all these things. The big three, the Match for Africa thing was this year. Mm. You may take issue with what the actual charity is or whatever. Like, there's always going to be something to be like, mm, well, I would have done it this way or this would have been better. But I do think, by and large, these are not intrinsically sinister people. That's a good point. That we, But we do have to judge people by their actions. We don't have to say this person is bad, this person is good. But it's useful to say what you said or what you did there was really damaging or was misleading or, you know, put people in potential peril, right? Um, yeah, but you know the bait and switch. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you're only focusing on this, but look at all this other good that they did here. Right. Yes, we get it. Everybody with this amount of privilege does some good on some level. <laughs> and to your point, let's talk about PTPA. 
Djokovic is very well respected among his peers, mm-hmm. among lower ranked players, players, you know, he goes up to players and asks them about their injuries, congratulates them about match wins that they're surprised he's even aware of, right? He seems like a great team player among his coworkers. And that that cannot be discounted. And the P- Professional Tennis Players Association movement is one of the biggest events in ATP politics in many, many years. It is a watershed. It may not succeed, but it's important. And I think Djokovic does show through his actions there that he cares about how money is distributed. He cares about the future of the sport. And he may not always go about it in the way that we hope or expect. But as you said, he is a, uh, a three-dimensional human being who contains a lot of uh, contradictions, like anyone. I would say the conclusion from this year, and I know I think we've talked about this before, because of what happened with Zverev and other players, we've got to stop treating grown men as stuffed animals, as characters, as squishy little baby animals who are innocent and wholesome. I think one of the weird developments of social media is this concept of wholesome, as if anyone can always be innocent and pure in your eyes. When the Zverev thing happened, to their credit, so many Zverev fans immediately believed Olia. They, I mean, there was just no discussion, right? And it showed so much character among that group of fans. But some people are still infantilizing other players. And I'm like, what are you doing? Some of them not just 20-something. Some of them super grown-ass men. Right, but this... 35-year-olds. And this Zverev thing should have been the lesson. Like, some some people treated him as this squishy baby. Baby and, giraffe. And... So don't do it to other players because they're human beings who have flaws and may do things that are really messed up. Which is okay. Okay. You want to treat them with kids' gloves, but when it's time to take the kids' gloves off, take them off. Mm. You don't have to be static in either corner. Right. Nadal has complete shit views on equal prize money. (laughs) Abhorrent. How he navigated talking about COVID-19 at the French Open, one of the more warm moments for me mm-hmm. in men's tennis this year. I can hold both those things within me. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. As to what, I mean, of course, there's degrees to these things. Is the Zverev stuff a complete deal breaker for you as a fan of his? Maybe it is. Maybe it should be. Mm-hmm. That's a call you have to make for yourself. But to go and blindly defend him all over the place... It's a complete sham, scam, farce for me. Yeah. Ooh. So are we going to talk about the Zverev stuff at all? Oh, didn't like we with what happened briefly? I feel like we can, we did an entire episode on that. Mm-hmm. We can direct folks to listen to that episode. Yes. Which the, was entitled... The Sound of the ATP Silence. This is our season finale, but we know that there is a follow-up piece by Ben Rothenberg speaking to Olya Sharapova, getting the promised second installment of her story, because mm. she said that she wants to tell it in segments. Who knows what that will look like if we have to come back for something in some way. Maybe we'll do a Twitch. Maybe we'll do oh. an Instagram thing. Mm. Rather than put out a whole new episode, here I would rather not go into detail on that again. I agree. Yeah. 
There were a few other off-the-court messes that happened on the ATP Tour this year. One of them was the coordinated Black Square mess in response to the Black Lives Matter movement from the top ATP players. Mm. We spoke about on the previous episode how tennis responding to the virus as well as this social upheaval in the United States became the two biggest stories of tennis while we were on break between March and July. Mm. Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff are leading the way on the woman's side. They are speaking truth to power, calling out injustice, putting themselves on the line physically, emotionally, mentally. And a lot of folks in tennis were wondering, well, what do the men have anything to say about this? Mm-hmm. We had Sasha Bain talking about how we don't have that problem in Europe, or was yeah. it Germany? What did he say? In Europe. In Europe. And folks tried to paint this as a, a North American U.S. problem, as if anti-black racism doesn't happen all over the globe, mm-hmm. that black people aren't strewn across the globe by colonialism, by slavery, by that people aren't by migrating migration from uh-huh. country to to country because of oppression in their own countries, in their countries of birth. It was such a myopic view of race relations globally that this should be relegated to just an American thing. And when you consider that tennis is a global sport and that these American players, more specifically these black American players, should go it alone without the support of their co-workers who choose to turn a blind eye, it became infuriating for us Mm. and for a lot of folks, I'm sure. And... (laughs) The ATP, we did the episode, The Sound of the ATP Silence. This is a through line, historically, when it comes to social issues. The less said, the better for them. And so they thought that this little coordinated crumb of Djokovic, Nadal, Federer turning their Instagram black for Mm -hmm. one day was going to be enough. And it infuriated a lot of people. Because it was such the bare minimum. It wasn't clear what was being said by the black square. And our position at the time was, have some damn curiosity about the world. Should we be giving free passes because Federer's up in his Swiss chalet? And the fact that he's done the match for Africa already? One thing in the past doesn't excuse you for things in the future. It's not. Mm. It's like this idea of I get to spend my money wherever I want. I get to be socially aware wherever I want because I have the lo- extreme luxury and privilege of picking my spots. Mm. That, for those who don't have that luxury, is not enough. And uh, that was just one more thing. (laughs) We had a few lighter notes earlier in the year that were controversial but not uh, existentially troubling. Robert Farah, the number one doubles player in the world at the time. Of course you snuck this onto the agenda. He was dinged. Well, I mean, he was in serious trouble over testing positive for the steroid boldenone. You are the tennis drug kingpin. Oh, I love I love these stories. And this was one of the rare instances where the story that the player comes back with is true. But was the, the beef that he ingested rare? Was it cooked to rare? <laughs> <laughs> the issue is that he claimed that Colombian beef contains the steroid boldenone, and he consumed it, which was cooked by his mother. He was asked by the authorities, I want to see the receipts. And guess what he did? He provided the literal receipts from the store the beef was purchased at. They traced it to the farm where the cattle were raised and were able to confirm his story. It's just, it's amazing. 
I love stuff like this. So Robert Farah was cleared. He just got married today, I think. Really? Or yesterday, yeah. Oh. I wonder how that will affect his insta thoughtdom. Right. His but output. Now he has to be extremely careful about eating any beef products in Colombia at home. Do you remember the exterminate the clay rats yes. controversy? Mm-hmm. That was after Kyrgios's terrible performance in Acapulco. He was injured. He took the court injured. But what happened afterward was just really ugly. Insulted the entire country of Mexico, <laughs> saying this is why you don't have any good players. He Instagrammed exterminate the clay rats. He insulted Pablo Carreño Busta randomly throughout the year, who is not, in fact, a clay specialist. It was just, it was very, people lean on Nick for speaking truth to power, which he frequently does. But this was something that was so mean-spirited and so misplaced. Stan Marinka, I would say, was, if there are any winners of quarantine, he was the winner of quarantine. Not to make light of a horrible situation, but Stan stayed at home in his gorgeous house, ate dinner with a massive teddy bear. He had some thirst picks. He had some cooking picks. Uh, Garbinia Muguruza was mysteriously at his house, but he wasn't in any of the pictures. He uh, just put together, he curated a great quarantine uh, timeline. Lots of wine glasses. Yes. Cheers. Now, uh, late in the year, we I say very humbly that we became your exclusive spot for Bernard Tomic OnlyFans updates. Well, we don't know that, that we were the only ones. Because, I mean, I don't listen to other podcasts. <laughs> as, as you know. Uh, so on our last episode, we did talk about Bernard Tomic's uh, girlfriend's OnlyFans, on which he makes a cameo. You have any updates about that? There isn't a whole lot to update at this time. It seems that folks were still lured onto her OnlyFans for $3 for the month. And then the Bernard interactions were held behind a $30 paywall per appearance. I will say that I was able to enter a sweepstakes for a PS5. I was like, wow, if this is how I get my hands on a PS5, something that I wasn't actively pursuing. But if I win a PS5 from liking a video on this OnlyFans, I, I just... 2020 truly would be a weird a weird space to be in. <laughs> anyway, I I would always caution you to beware when an OnlyFans costs $3. Anything less than like $8, there's going to be a scam behind the wall. There's going to be a second day wall. <laughs> but, you know, she is she's a very beautiful young woman. This as I said before, this is honest work. And if you're so inclined, the the work is honest, the strategy not so much. Right. Right. Because you really should be saying, hello, fans, you can watch Bernard Tomic's fingers do oh my, something. Oh my God. Can you say that on the show? For $33 for a three to four minute mm-hmm. video. I Each time. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on the show. What, fingers? Well, the, all the things that it implies. I'm just saying. It appears that yes. that's all you see of Bernard. Oh, okay. That's why there is an E explicit rating on our podcast. Yes. Do we have children listening to our show? I should hope not. On to keeping ourselves honest. On the WTA wrap last week, we talked about players that we had predicted would break out. We're going to do the same thing for the ATP side. In January, we 
made predictions about a top 50 player, a 51 to 100, and a player outside the top 100 to have a great year. Mm-hmm. How did we do? I did great for one of them, and okay for another, and mm-hmm. bad for the yeah. other. So you picked who? For the ATP top 50 player to burst out, I picked Urkacz, who, I mean, didn't have a terrible year, up a few spots in his ranking, and... uh Player 51 to 100, I picked Nishioka. Did not turn out so well with that one. But not not awful. He improved his ranking from 73 to 56. He reached the final of Delray Beach, losing to, I believe, Riley Opelka, right? He did give us that great social media content with Blair Henley with the Yoshi stuff. Yes. In the golf cart. For your players outside the top 100. I said either Jay Clark or Vashik Pospisil. And I was well, right with Vashek. You won big time on that. What did Vashek do? Tell the people. He made the fourth round of the U.S. Open, finals in Sofia, finals in Montpellier. He had wins over Medvedev, Shapovalov, Bautista Agut. So It was altogether a great pick. And he became uh, an influential political figure in tennis as well. For yourself? For me, for the top 50 player, I was happy about this pick. I picked Kasper Ruud who reached the semifinals of the Masters Tournament in Rome and the 500 in Hamburg, final in Santiago, and won his first title in Buenos Aires. He recorded wins over Berrettini, Fabio Fognini, Hachanov, and John Isner. So I, I feel happy with that pick. Better mm-hmm. than most of my terrible picks. For Speaking of... <laughs> for 51 to 100, I picked Michael Emer from Sweden. It was not a great pick. I'll just leave it there. Uh, You know, I'm not criticizing players for anything they do on court during 2020. It was a terrible year. 2021 might be a rebuilding year for him. And for your player ranked outside the top 100, you went with either Gunaswaran or Sumit Nagal. Mm -hmm. Neither achieved those lofty standards you set forth for them, but Sumit Nagal did break through. In social media, in the he, thirst world. He did, big time. People discovered him. He's a good-looking guy. Both of them finished close to their last year's ranking, but with the huge caveat that there were not a lot of opportunities for players ranked outside no. the top 100 to improve. And so, even if you had huge results, the two-year ranking system is an impediment to making huge jumps in the rankings. So that, that covers it, I think. That's all. On the agenda here, it's noted a note on a future GoFundMe. Yeah, so, well, let's talk about the previous GoFundMe first, because I feel like we do owe some transparency to people who donated. Because so many tournaments were canceled and we had several trips canceled, we decided not to do another GoFundMe because we have money left over, right? We we have a trip to Berlin that we have to take because we have credit for it. We had intended to go to Miami possibly the U.S. Open, and like this is a really, really hard year for a lot of people. We didn't feel right launching another GoFundMe this year in what was such a difficult year for a lot of people. We put this here in the episode because we've had quite a few people reach out to us and say, hey, where's when's the GoFundMe starting? When's the Kickstarter starting? How can I send you some funds? And I mean, it was a pretty easy decision for us this year. There are a lot of people out there far worse off than we are at this point. Luckily, you've been able to stay at home and work since March. Mm. Luckily, we live in Canada with a government that cares about its service workers. So it hasn't been 
calamity on dog hair, as Mariah would say. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much to people who reached out and asked, but it just, it really, like, it didn't sit right with either of us to to open up that possibility this year. That said, should things become more normalized next year, we, we will likely revisit this at the end of mm-hmm. next season. This is episode 35 of 2020 of season six. It'll be our finale, we hope. We always say we hope because you never know when something's going right, to come up. Right, And to echo what we said on our previous episode when we recapped the, the women's season, we are pretty pleased with how the season turned out, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, to be totally honest, some of these episodes were really difficult to sit down and record. The motivation was truly lacking. Some of them we felt were total trash. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're probably starved for content at certain points, but some of them we edited and put it down. We're like, oh, Uh, oh, Lord. And I know you're, you know, we're the harshest critics of ourselves, hopefully for the most part, but it felt like the show must go on. Like that was that was the most important principle of this year that we felt, okay, let's do our homework and force ourselves to put things out because I think it'll make us feel better and it'll hopefully provide an hour of diversion mm. for some people. And there were some episodes that we legit are proud of. We got to interview Zena Garrison on Zoom. That was pretty cool. Yeah. We, I mean, I, you know, I love learning. Learned so much about Monticellus, about the history of the WTA, mm. about things that shattered myths I had about history. I love that stuff. I think we also learned about what, some of our strengths are as podcasters and people who are in this tennis space. We are not interviewers, really. Right. Like, it's not our strong suit. And as far as the direction of the show going forward, I don't think you'll see us doing many kind of like long form interviews unless it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to be going through a list of people and be like, well, let's see if we can get this person, get this person, get this person, and then come up with some questions just to have a guest. I think this season, having the time to reflect on what it is that we do and how we do it, it's made us more hyper aware of what we want the show to look like and how it's different from other shows. Like other people can do that stuff and we're mm-hmm. fine not doing it. And do it, it extremely it. well. Yeah. You know, it's not something that we feel particularly good at. We did the Xena interview and you thought your takeaway from it was, wow, this was really good. And all I could think about was all the follow-up questions that I missed, all the things I wish I had asked in retrospect. Yeah. And I, it left me with kind of a sick feeling for a few days, not being totally happy with it, when now I feel great about it. Mm. But that period of not feeling great about it is not fun. <laughs> We're both introverts, by the way. So that contributes to that, that feeling. Anyway. The research stuff is what we enjoy. Yeah. We've told you way too much about our... Uh, psyches so we're going to sign off for this year 2020 thank you so much for sticking with us yes i echo that all the best for the holiday season i know that it's not always jingle bells and sleigh rides for a lot of folks but take care of yourselves and uh reach out to us if you want to chat we're at thebodyserve at gmail.com we're on twitter and instagram at thebodyserve I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. 
I do want to add too that when you do reach out to us, we kind of have designated roles as to who responds to what. So it's not that one person is ignoring you. Like you are the designated email person by and yes. large. Yes, yes. And when you've been negligent in your duties for too long, then I will send a few emails out. <laughs> I'll respond to some. We're kind of in that situation right now. So if it's been a while, we're not ignoring you. It's just a lot is going on. Mm-hmm. And I will do more of the Twitter stuff. Okay. Thanks for listening throughout this entire year. Thanks for sticking with us. See you in 2021. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.